You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. Today I wanted to introduce another special guest, Dr. John Vucetich, who's a professor at Michigan Tech University. Listen to this bio. Field biologist. He's studying wolves. He's studying moose. He's studying many other things we're going to talk about today. And he's an author now, which as a former professor, I can just under, understand the, the, the time it takes to write a book while you're doing everything else. So an amazing book called Restoring the Balance, What Wolves Tell Us About Our Relationship with Nature. John, it's such a pleasure to have you today. Thank you for coming on. Oh my gosh, it's great to be here. Yeah. Very excited. Good, good, good. Yeah, it's our, our listeners are going to love this one. I, I absolutely know it. We love wolves. We love our moose. I can't wait to talk about them. But before we get going, can you? Always good to get your background. Like, where did you grow up, and 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 what really drove you as a young boy to fall in love with nature? Well, my gosh, I I grew up. Um, it seems like a very mundane uh, sort of life. I grew up in a suburb north of Detroit. Uh, my parents uh, were both social workers, and so they, um, you know, that's a that's a pretty distant life from the natural world. But I was in Boy Scouts, and the Boy Scout troop that I was in was amazing, uh, and we did, did lots of camping trips, and uh, and so I just learned to enjoy the outdoors, everything from tying knots, setting up tents, and you know, hanging out in the rain, and just all the things with being outside, and that's kind of how it started. Um, when I went to university, I wanted to go as far away from home as possible, but it still had to be in-state tuition. <laughs> and so Michigan Technological University uh, fits that bill. It's pretty far away from, from my hometown. And uh, when I got here, Michigan Technological University, where I still am today, three decades later, um, I met uh, the person who would become my mentor, uh, Rolf Peterson. Rolf Peterson was leading research on the wolves and moose of Isle Royale National Park. This island is uh, located in Lake Superior, and it has for quite some time been the site of the world's longest study of any predator-prey system in the world. To make a long story short, uh, Rolf Peterson, my mentor, uh, eventually retired. And when he retired, he left an opening at the university. I filled that position. And so I've been leading the research for a number of years now. So uh, I wish my partner Angie was here because she's, she's a Michigan girl, loves Michigan, always talks about Michigan. We have talked about I Isle Royal uh, quite a few times and what a unique ecosystem it, it is. And so when I read this book... And that's what this is all about. It, 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 it's amazing. It's an amazing story of the wolves that we're going to get into today. But can I just ask, I've been there even, you know, going to get a PhD is a huge decision. So when you're sitting there thinking about what I'm going to do with my life, did you ever think you were going to be studying wolves? Oh, uh, you know, if, if I was responsible for planning my life, it would uh, not be nearly as good as it turned out. Um, I'm, I mean, yeah, things have been extraordinary for me, and uh, some of them seem to be just accidental. It is, is undoubtedly the case that wolves found me rather than me finding wolves. And, uh, and, and I even have to say, my closest affinity 
probably even to this day is probably a little bit more with moose than it is with wolves. We can talk about why that might be in a little bit, but, um, you know, what I, what I would have to say is that once the accident occurred, the accident being when I found wolves and they found me, um, I did realize they were a creature that I could stick with for a very, very long time, very likely my whole life. And the reason being is because they represent so much. They're, they're a really interesting creatures to study from a straight ecological perspective. And there is so much embodied in the relationship between humans and wolves that um, it, if, if you can understand that relationship between humans and wolves, you understand a great deal about our relationship with nature on the whole. And so they offer so much. Um, and so that's, that's kind of why I stuck with them. Uh, I guess I want to jump into what, what talk about the moose. <laughs> so, so what, I mean, they are, you know, it's a species we did cover and, and I actually learned quite a lot about them. And, and, and I really want to ask you, and maybe I can ask you now too, uh, before we really start jumping into the book, because, you know, the research you've done for the last 20 years is just phenomenal. What is it about moose? And I, I guess I can ask you here, what does their future look like with climate change? Because the one fact that I, I didn't realize until I really studied them is they don't sweat. And so right. they're they're in trouble, like they're in big trouble. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No. Uh, moose and climate change, generally speaking, they, they don't they don't go together. Moose are um, creatures of the North Country. They like it. They like it cold. And um, so, in the big picture, you'd expect it to go poorly. Um, that being said, there are a lot of mysteries about moose and climate change. A lot of it has to do with the fact that. Um, moose relationship with temperature does depend a little bit on the time of year. And so, for example, a spring that comes a little bit early, man, that can be a good thing for a moose uh, because the, you know, the landscape greens up and they can start eating a, a good diet uh, quicker. Um, and there are some parasites that um, moose are bothered by, especially in North America. And those parasites have complicated relationships with temperature. And so I think... Um, I mean, this is a, kind of a sad commentary on many aspects of climate change in our relationship with with, with nature, is that I, I think the future doesn't look terribly bright. Um, but at the same time, uh, the details of how it's going to go down are also you know, not, not perfectly clear. Um, with respect to why it is that moose are a little bit closer to me than wolves, um, well, it has to do with just that, a little bit closer. You know, when we study wolves... Um, most of the observations that we make are from an airplane, a, sm- a small aircraft that's flying a few hundred feet above the earth. And, you know, the noise is basically the noise of the engine of the airplane. And what you see is, you know, they're just little dots down there on the landscape doing their thing. And now we've become quite good at interpreting all that we see and we can get to know their lives and we learn amazing things about them. But there's this big distance between you and them. And, and really, there's a way in which the proper relationship between a predator and a human is with some distance. You don't normally see them. And when you see them, it's fleeting. And But here's where moose are different. You know, moose, you can kind of get to know a moose. Um, on Isle Royale, you can find individuals that are not terribly afraid of people. And it takes it's just not automatic. It takes a little patience and you have to kind of, well, here's the thing, build a relationship with an individual moose. And you can start to tell them apart. They don't all look the same. And uh, some of their differences are um, accidents, you know, like a, a torn ear or a, a big wart on the side of their head or something like that that helps you tell one from part from another. And But then, I mean, it, it's uh, let me say it this way. 
it's moose really were the first creature that I realized this is a person. This is another person. They're not a human, but they are a person. And they have an interest in what happened yesterday. They have a memory of what happened yesterday. They have aspirations and hopes for what might happen next. And man, that, th- those are the ingredients of being a person. And it's, it's, it's moose that taught me that first. And uh, for that reason, they'll always be, they'll always be special to me. Yeah. They are. Oh, they, they're fascinating. They're, they're fascinating, fascinating, fascinating. Uh, I, we'll talk a little bit more about that too. Cause in the, in the book, uh, you, you mentioned the parasites and something in our podcast, we always try to get across is these complicated food webs. And, and I got that from reading your book as far as not only the wolf moose relationship, but you know, the, the flora and then these parasites, right. It's very complex. Yeah, no, no, no doubt. I mean, the connections are are, are remarkable, um, and and this is one of the reasons that Isle Royal has been so special for scientists. And so, a, a great comparison with Isle Royal would be uh, Yellowstone National Park, another mm-hmm. great site where a lot of things have been learned about wolves. In Yellowstone, wolves aren't the only predator. There's wolves. There's mountain lions. There's grizzly bears. Among the prey, there's elk. There's bison. There's pronghorn. There's deer. And so. You know, you have three or four prey species, three main predator species, and every one of those species is connected to the next. That's a lot of connections. On Isle Royal, for the most part, it's wolves up at the top, moose down below that, and then the things that they eat. And and so where in Yellowstone, you, you have no less than a dozen important connections. On Isle Royal, you have two, again, between the predator and the prey, and then the prey and the vegetation. There are complicating themes for sure, and parasites for moose are definitely one of those complicating themes. Um, but but Isle Royal again, what's what's held scientists' attention for so long is that it's relatively simple. And of course, the reason it's that way is because it's an island, and mm-hmm. it's harder for species to get to islands, and so not as many have made it. Oh yeah, it's yeah. It, it was an interesting read uh, reading that relationship. Uh, Want to highlight here in a minute, but. One of the things I, I wanted to know, and you mentioned tracking from the air, and I did this once. I, I went to go do a, a, a head count of a wild horse herd in a small airplane. I did it once, and that's all I needed to be in that little plane. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. It scared the living yeah. woo out of me. I said, okay, never again. How difficult, like you said, to track the wolves. So, so the moose, I mean, they're massive, right? So it's, it's easier yeah. to spot them. But how do you track these wolves? Yeah, you know, actually, actually, just uh, life in the airplane is is interesting, uh, right? Just from that spot. So, th- to help our audience out here a little bit, we're talking about a plane for which the wings are over the top, and that means that when you look out the window, you get a really great view. There's just two people in the plane. There's a pilot. They sit right in front of you, and then you sit right behind them. So the fuselage is, uh, you know, it's only a couple feet wide. So I mean, if if you're a sizable person, you know, your hips are touching both sides. And, uh, and so the, the great thing is that you can easily look out the left or right side of the window and see anything that you want. It, it feels like you're in a hang glider is what it feels like. It's, it's that small and gets pushed around by the wind and so forth. The, the things that are curious about it, though, is, is your relationship with the pilot. There's two things about it. One is the pilot basically becomes an extension of your senses. Because if, if you want them to turn left, because that's what you want to see, something over on the left, you say, oh, turn left. And they turn 90 degrees left. You're like, oh, no, not that far left, just a little bit left or a little bit less than that. Or can you go down a little bit lower? No, 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 not that far down. 
And so, so there has to really be this great communication between you and the pilot. They have to know what you want and you have to know how they read your interests and that sort of thing. And so you really become close to the pilot. The other thing is that my mentor, Rolf Peterson, he's a professor, been studying wolves for lots and lots of time, but he can't come with me in the airplane when I'm first starting out. And so, so I don't know what to do. Right. And so, so, um, you know, your your serious mentor in the beginning is the pilot, and I, you really feel like you're a secretary at first, just writing down the things that the pilot says you should write down. Yeah. Should I write that down? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd be a good thing to write down. And um, and so um, yeah, the, the the first thing that again, it's 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 a human interest thing, but it is really a rich part of the whole thing is just uh, the things you can see from the airplane and how it is a a team effort right from the beginning. Otherwise, you know, the more the mechanics of it all, um, it is pretty straightforward. There's uh, snow on the ground, so wolves stand out reasonably easy. The leaves are off of the trees, at least the deciduous trees. And while it's a big place, 500 square kilometers, and there are only typically a couple dozen wolves, so it is like finding a needle in the haystack. But one of the things that, that works with it is that when wolves leave tracks in the snow, the tracks are pretty distinctive. Um, they look like a ribbon passing through the snow. And, and because wolves can walk so long, it's a ribbon that just goes and goes and goes and goes. And this is different from other kinds of tracks. Moose, moose don't go anywhere. And so when you see moose tracks, not only do the details of the tracks look different, but they're all just kind of all tangled up on top of each other. Right, right. But, you know, uh, wolf tracks, they find a ridgetop and man, they just go for, you know, two or three or four or five or six miles. And they cut across a lake and they go straight across a lake and you can see that. The other thing that helps is that they're very much wolves are very much creatures of habit. You know, they're territorial and uh, their territory is their home and uh, or maybe it's better to say their neighborhood. And just like you and your relationship with your neighborhood, when you go to the when you go to the corner market, you take the same route every time. You don't take a different route each time. There's one route that's the easiest way to take and that's the one you take all the time. And Wolves are the same way. They have spots that they go to defend their territory. There's spots where there's good hunting to be done. Uh, and they take, you know, the same routes back and forth between them. And so, so we get to know those routes. And so when we lose the wolves, we have good places to start looking for them. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and the one thing is that this is so tied to the geography of the place, um, that, that the patterns are the same from one generation of wolves to the other. So we're following wolves that are taking the same routes that their parents and grandparents and great grandparents have taken. And, uh, and it's kind of fun to know that, you know, that wolf, they don't know they're, they're brand new. They're brand new mm -hmm. alpha. They don't know where they're going to go when they get to the end of that lake. But I think I might know because uh, right, right, it's right, the right. same route, the same route their grandparents right, took. Right. They're going to hang a left at the Southern end of Lake Ritchie or whatever the case may be. That's amazing. Now, in the book, you do talk about some radio collar. Is that typical for some of the wolves? Yeah. You know, um, radio collars are used by wildlife biologists in a, in a variety of different ways and for different purposes. Um, for us, we have aimed, generally speaking, to put on as few radio collars and as infrequently as possible for a couple of reasons. One is it's better for the wolves. It's not really especially in their interest to be wearing radio collars. And what our need has been, has been basically to be able to find the packs. And if you have one or two wolves in a pack collared, you're going to be able to find the whole pack. And, um, and so for that reason, we've kind of, we've kind of kept it to just that kind of minimal level. Right. Now, do you go on the ground and track them and, and. 
we, we do a lot of groundwork. Uh, we don't do too much tracking from the ground. It's, they, they cover so much ground that it's, uh, it's better to do that from the airplane. However, um, wolves very frequently kill moose, of course. That's their primary prey on Isle Royale. We count how frequently that occurs. That helps us understand this key relationship between wolves and moose. But we want to know more than just um, how often do they kill the moose. That could all be done from the airplane. What we want to know is what was the condition of that moose at the time that it died. Was it a healthy moose? Nothing wrong with it. And the fact that the wolves killed it is maybe a big deal to the moose population. Or was it an old moose, a starving moose, a moose that had something wrong with it? The fact that wolves killed it is not that big a deal to the moose population. The only way to find that out is to go in on the ground. And so after the wolves have done, uh, or after they're done feeding on the on the moose, we will um, land the plane that nears Frozen Lake, strap on our snowshoes, and hike on in, whatever it is. It might be a few hundred yards. It might be mm-hmm. five or six mm-hmm. miles. And then we perform a necropsy. And uh, and we're looking for just these key things. We're looking for, our, there is there arthritis? That's a very common uh, ailment for older moose. We collect uh, teeth of, of these moose, and with the teeth, you can age the moose, find out how old they are. Um, and, uh, and then we collect marrow samples. Uh, marrow is uh, you know, what's inside the bone. And uh, if that's full of fat or not, you can tell whether they were starving to death or not. And so, uh, so those necropsies keep us on the ground. And then we, then we do a lot of, a lot of work uh, that's focused on moose and the forest, and then that keeps us on the ground too. Um, we have... We're, we're experts in uh, urine and feces. You, you, there's yep, no yep. end to, to the things you can yep, learn yep, from yep. that. Yep. And uh, for the moose in particular, um, you know, our, our main field work is to, uh, and, we, and we do this with, with field technicians that are just amazing at their efforts. Um, they, every morning they find a new moose they, by finding their tracks, I should say. And then they follow the tracks of that moose. And uh, what they're looking for are places where they have uh, defecated and urinated. We collect the yellow snow. We collect the pellets. And then b- because it's wintertime and there's tracks in the snow, we can also see exactly what plants they've passed by. And if you look carefully at the plants, you can see which ones they've taken bites from. And you can see which ones they've just walked past. So with the urine and the feces, we know what their diet has been, generally what they've been eating. We also know whether they're basically starving or not because of other markers that are in the urine. And then uh, and then we can see which particular plants they're passing up and which ones they're eating. We can assemble all that and tell some really, uh, you get some useful insights on uh, the relationship between the moose and the forest. Yeah, we do. We do talk about poop and pee quite a bit because <laughs> it tells you yeah, so yeah, yeah. much. It tells you so much about the animal's health and their diet and everything. It do, it does, and and uh, it's it's got two benefits. One is it contains so much information, and it really is uh, this magically non-invasive method. And so it's not a bother to the moose or, or the wolf at all. If you pick up their poop, they could care less. And yeah, so yeah. Uh, so it's got both benefits. I, I laugh at the yellow snow because I was like, "How do you get urine samples? <laughs> follow right, you can't right. follow them around with the urine bag. That's what we used to do with our animals, you know, and try to collect urine samples. But yeah, that's <laughs> great." Now, how close, just, you know, just out of curiosity, is not scientific, but how close have you gotten to moose and how close have you gotten into the wolves there? Oh, um, I mean, I've been uncomfortably close to moose. It's yeah. been accidental. Um, you know, what's probably better to describe is what, what distance do I plan to be from moose right, and right, so right, forth. Right, and right. so, you know, uh, you know, we've become good at moose that we're familiar with and that are familiar with us. You can, you can follow them all day long at, 
you know, 20 or 30 feet or something like that. That's close enough for us to see everything that we'd like to see. And, uh, and that tends to be a comfortable distance uh, for both the moose and the person. Um, but, but I have just, you know, it's really just by having, being sitting quiet and, and here was the mistake, sitting too quiet. A moose was unaware of my presence. And, uh, and, and, and I mean, it walked like right past me. Uh, I was more terrified than I've ever been in my whole life. Oh, yeah. Because in that moment, you have to decide whether you're going to continue to try to remain invisible, which is possible. They might just mm-hmm. walk by you and not notice you. Um, or you have to decide, I want to let this moose know that I'm here. But you're then right. you'd better you better hope that it runs in the other direction and not right. you know, over right. the top of you. Um, um, but I, I, sh- I feel compelled to share a story that's uh, really about my wife and a moose. Mm-hmm. And it, it tells... Uh, tells much of what we're speaking about here this is a moose that she had become uh quite familiar with um and she was watching it to understand its feeding behaviors and they knew each other from all summer long and uh but they they had a comfortable distance that they liked to keep which again was kind of this 20 30 feet or something like that there was a moment when they were both doing their thing the moose was eating and leah was taking notes leah my wife and um the moose uh, quickly raised its head, ears forward, and uh, looking away from Leah. And in, in a heartbeat, that moose pivoted on its hooves straight towards my wife, Leah, ran right in, in her direction. And she reports that she could tell she, it was running in her direction, but not like at her. And it went right past her. And as soon as it went, like brushing shoulders, essentially. And as soon as it did, it spun around again. And Leah, my wife, could look up, and when she looked up, she could see this big moose nose hanging over her head. And they both were looking to the north in this particular. Mm-hmm. They were looking to the north, and a wolf walked by. Oh wow! And yeah. so the 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 moose had detected. I'm sorry, the moose had detected the wolf, mm-hmm. and then the moose decided they would take cover by hiding behind uh, <laughs> hiding <laughs> behind wife. Leah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, anyways, uh, <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, and and then with wolves, you know. Um, you know, we, we live capture wolves from time to time, put radio collars on them. And of course, then we're handling them uh, directly. Um, but, you know, my encounters with wolves are um, otherwise, if they're not from the airplane, they're accidental encounters just like everyone else's. And, 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 to, and to, that, to, to that remark, you know, my, my most special encounter with a wolf would probably seem unlikely to some of your, some of your listeners. It was early spring. Uh, we were among the first people to get to Isle Royal that year. And so there was really nobody else there in terms of humans, um, and just maybe half a dozen people on the island. And uh, I was doing some early field work, walking down the trail. And at that time of the year, the wolves used the trail still, the, the, the footpaths that people do. And when people get there, they, the wolves tend to not use them quite as often. Anyways, I was walking out. It was muddy, and there were boot prints that I was making all along the way. And then I was walking home at the end of the day. Um, there was a wolf track. Um, I was completely superimposed perfectly inside my boot track, going in the oh, opposite wow. direction. And um, my gosh, I see so much about wolves and see them do so many interesting things. Um, but that is, uh, that's still my special, most special moment because that wolf is like just right off into the forest there, probably perhaps looking at me. It certainly mm-hmm. saw me at some point in the day, mm-hmm. certainly knew my presence. And I had no idea of its presence except for seeing that footprint. And there was something so nice about it because that's in many important ways, a proper relationship between humans and predators. Mm -hmm. It's with some distance. It's with an awareness that you're in the same place that they are, but you're each doing your own thing and one's not bothering the other. And and that was just, um, anyways, so that's, uh, 
that as modest as that is, it's yeah. I'll never forget that really simple interaction. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it obviously movies, media, wolves have this fearsome reputation, but you know, we've tried to take away a lot of that mystique in the podcast that they're more scared of us than we are of them. Yes. Yeah. No, no doubt about it. And the, you know, the, the, the mythology that surrounds wolves is, um, importantly tragic. Um, we vilify them in so many ways. Uh, then again, there are so many mythologies around wolves that are, um, very, very positive. Uh, you know, Romulus and Remus, the founders of Rome, the founders yes. of Western civilization were suckled by a wolf and the creation story of Mongolian people involves uh, the union of a deer and a wolf. That's how people came to be, humans came to be. In the Ojibwa um, worldview, uh, humans and wolves are, are siblings, literally siblings. And uh, so there's, there are many negative uh, mythologies, many positive mythologies. And uh, wolf, I mean, what's special about wolves is that they're tied to so much mythology. There are few creatures that have more mythology tied to them than wolves. And, and there's two things. One is it begs the question, why? And to that, I only have guesses. Uh, and my guesses are uh, we see too much of ourselves in wolves. Um, they live in families just like we do. This is the reason that dogs live with us so well, because mm -hmm. we all know how to live in a pack. And um, we, for, the, for many humans, um, we both like to eat the same thing, which is large ungulates. Uh, for humans, it's mostly cattle. Yeah. Uh, for wolves, it's mostly moose and deer and elk and creatures like that. But the, the, those are really just all large ungulates. And, um, and so when we see wolves and we see so much of ourselves, I think we don't know whether to admire them or whether to be jealous of them or whether to be threatened by them, threatened by them in an existential sort of a sense. And I think those are the reasons why we mythologize them so much. Um, again, it's, it's been importantly tragic for wolves. For my own part, I've done what I can to make it an opportunity because so many people like to talk about wolves. But at the same time, when we're talking about wolves, whether it's how we like them or how it is that many people dislike them, sometimes quite vigorously, um, there's an important way in which we're talking about our relationship with nature on the whole. And so I've, I've really um, you know, done what I can to make my career very much about using wolves as that symbol for our relationship with nature and how to make it better on the whole. Yeah, I know. I know. It's, uh, I'd love listening to you talk about that because it, it, it's for somebody that studied them for your, your whole career and then get your perspective on them. Cause you've, you've seen their behaviors, you, you, you've seen them up close. So yeah, that was fascinating. Thank you for that. Getting back to Isle Royal. What are some of the challenges that the wildlife are facing there? Well, um, the thing that's been most important in particular for my work is that the wolf population in recent years has um, suffered greatly. They almost went extinct three or four years ago. They were down to just two wolves. And there's two really important implications of wolves almost having gone extinct on Isle Royale. One is why did it happen? And the other is what to be done about it. First, why did it happen? So uh, Isle Royale is a small place, uh, and small by wolf standards anyways, so typically just a couple of dozen wolves. And so because of that, the population is never very big, and they're vulnerable to inbreeding. One of the things that had been happening for many decades that we weren't really quite aware of until recently 
is that the wolf population had been kind of managing its inbreeding problem by the fact that ice bridges would form in many winters between the island and the mainland. And when that occurred, sometimes a wolf would come from the mainland to the island, infuse the population with new genes, and then mitigate the inbreeding. So ice bridges in the 1960s occurred in about three out of every four years. And a successful immigrant, we now believe, seems to have occurred maybe only about once a decade or something like that. So there's still kind of rare events, but they were still occurring at enough frequency that it was all very fine. As the 20th century proceeded, the climate warmed, especially in the upper Great Lakes area, and ice bridges started to dwindle. Now they're in the neighborhood of something like once every 10 years. And that kind of turned off the spigot, so to speak. And so it made it tougher for new wolves to come to the island. The wolf population then really became inbred and they started to go extinct. And here's the here's what the challenge became for the next part, which is what do you do about that? It turns out that the in the United States, the National Park Service has a very particular kind of mission and philosophy. And that mission and philosophy is very much wrapped around the word preservation. Preservation, as a person might think of it from the early 20th century, kind of like a John Muir kind of an understanding of it all. This sort of like humans and nature are separate, and where there aren't humans, where there's nature, we should just let it be, let nature run its course. And on with that philosophy, which is quite old and probably best described now as outdated, with that philosophy, two ideas emerged about what to do with wolves on Isle Royal. One view is we should just leave our hands off of it and let things play out the way they play out. Good Lord, it's an island. Populations go extinct on islands. That's just what's going to happen. So just leave it be. The other view, however, is that no, no, no. Um, the loss of wolves on Isle Royal was caused by people. An indirect effect climate change. And so to... to to restore wolf predation on Isle Royale, that would be to mitigate a human effect. It wouldn't be to perpetuate a human effect. And so therefore, intervention is the right thing. And I, th I think what's challenging about it is that um, Isle Royale is one example of one park where climate change took something away from it. And there are many, many other examples, everything from glaciers and Glacier National Park to what is likely to happen to sequoia trees in Sequoia National Park and Joshua trees and the Everglades. Climate change is going to wreak havoc with all of these places. And we have a difficult decision before us, which is when it's possible to protect them, should we? Or do we just say, man, that's a new world that we live in and we got to just let some of those things go? And here's the challenge, here's the real challenge, is that while I think that the Park Service made the right choice on Isle Royal, which is to, they eventually brought wolves back, and they're doing well now, that decision was awkward and difficult, and I think the reasons that were offered uh, are not fully resolved, and I think we need to get them resolved, because this scenario is going to play out over and over again. And in the future, it's going to play out with which, with much bigger stakes. I mean, think about sequoia trees. Those are one of a kind. Those are magnificent trees. And to protect them would be Herculean, but, but, but possible, I suppose. My right. goodness, we, we sent William Shatner into outer space know, just this week. If we, can send a, if we can send a 90-year-old into outer space, I'm <laughs> sure that we can save sequoia trees if we choose. But should we? And then think about something that's even harder, like the Everglades. You know, the Everglades represent humanity's 
most elaborate restoration project because the hydrology of the of of the Everglades you know really deeply deeply disturbed mostly by human agriculture and um, we've been endeavoring as best we can as humans to put that back together most expensive most creative longest lasting restoration project should be completed in the next 20 30 years right about the time that the ocean is ex expected to completely consume the Everglades is it worth it I don't know the answer to the question like that and uh, but this this is the these are the the relatively new questions that climate change is posing for us. We're not well prepared to answer them, and uh, you know Isle Royal is 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 importantly a litmus test for that, and a uh, and, uh, and 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 a testing ground for how well prepared we are to think our way through those ideas. Uh, it, it's amazing, and you know in the book when you see that population crash, I'm sitting here thinking, okay, what are the effects on the food web? So, you know, you lay it out beautifully and you, you do talk about the ice bridges and, and how that has helped. But when those wolves population crashed, what were some of the implications? Right. You know, the, the, there are two kinds of implications, I would say. One is um, the ecological implications, which we'll talk about in just a minute. And um, your listeners may have gathered by now, by the way that we've been talking, that I have actually two academic lives. One academic life is as an ecologist, but I also do a fair amount of uh, work in, in scholarly ethics and environmental philosophy. And so I think that um, when we lost wolf predation on Isle Royal, and then when we chose to restore it, there were both ecological consequences and there were the ethical consequences. And they, they both deserve their attention. And so first, the, the ecological consequences... You know, essentially what's at stake here is that, um, you know, wolves are very important for influencing the abundance of moose. And when wolves are performing their ecological function, they keep moose within a smaller range of abundances. They keep moose abundance from getting too high, and then that limits the impact on the vegetation. And when wolves are unable to do that, uh, then the moose population gets very, very big. Um, they really uh, do damage to the forest. Uh, and then it leads to, you know, really these terrible starvation events uh, for moose. Those are the ecological effects. And they're reasonably well understood. But the other thing that I think is also very important, again, are these kind of moral or ethical consequences. There's another way to describe Isle Royal, and we can now we can kind of go a little bit back to Everglades and Glaciers mm -hmm, National Park mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. Sequoia trees and how special those things are. If we think of Isle Royal and the wolves that live there, you're like, ah, oh my gosh, there's there's a lot of wolves in the world and lots of wolves living in lots of places. If we lose them from Isle Royal, what difference would that make? I mean, really, it's not mm -hmm. that big a deal. And my goodness, there are lots of moose populations, lots of ungulate populations that live without a large predator. I suppose that can be okay if it happens on an island. So a person can go through all of that and I guess perhaps come to those conclusions. I don't think I would, but I can, I know smart people that have. But here's what I see. What I see is that Isle Royal was a place where there had been a top predator that was not persecuted by humans at all. They weren't persecuted by humans mainly because they're on an island, and it's very difficult mm -hmm. to persecute wolves while they're on an island. Mm -hmm. You can't even hit them with your cars accidentally because there are no cars on Isle Royal. And then you have a moose population that isn't hunted. And it's very, very fine to hunt moose populations and other ungulates. There's no trouble with that. But isn't it interesting and isn't it nice and isn't it special to have one that's not hunted? And then Isle Royal has a forest that's 
not been logged in about a century. And so you have an entire food chain from the predators to the herbivores to the forest where humans aren't involved in exploiting any of those levels. And again, there's nothing wrong with logging a forest, nothing wrong with, with hunting moose. But to have one place where those processes are unfolding, and we can just see how they would unfold without humans impacting them through exploitation, that's very rare. As far as I know, there isn't another forest in the world where that happens. Even if you take a place like Yellowstone, you may think, oh, well, certainly Yellowstone qualifies as that. It doesn't. Wolves in Yellowstone, enough of them leave the park often enough, and then they're vulnerable to being hunted by humans and poached by humans. And the elk that live in Yellowstone are migratory, and they leave the park right at the time that coincides with the hunting season. Mm -hmm. Again, there's nothing wrong with hunting elk. It's a perfectly fine activity. But we can't say the Yellowstone elk aren't hunted. They're totally hunted. And so, so for reasons like that, Isle Royale ends up being this possibly, probably, to my knowledge, the only place like it in the world. And we let climate change take that away from us. And I, I just think two things. One, it was a right, beautiful thing to have. And we took it away out of negligence, really negligence caused by climate change. And it was really from a technical perspective, really easy to replace and restore what it is that we broke. And and for me, that ends up being the reason to have brought wolves back. Yeah. So when they, when they brought those wolves back, where did they pick those from? Because I'm trying to imagine especially you being involved in that, you, you would have to be, I would, I, I, I did, I'll, I guess I'll ask, were you involved with that? But you know, that is such a specific niche for those wolves, you know, to specialize in moose, to be able to take them down, hunt them. So where did you replace those wolves? Where did you find right. them? Yeah. Right. Well, it's so funny. So this uh, part of this is a topic that I usually don't talk about since you brought uh, it up. I will, right. though. And so there's uh, there's some actually some 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 really sad politics that took place. And so I uh, was uh, explicitly and very thoroughly excluded from the process of bringing wolves back to Isle Royale. And that's because there were some influential people involved in the park service who thought it was a bad idea. And when I advocated for it, they became upset and they saw to it that I didn't get to participate in the reintroduction of it. I'm fine by that. It was uh, I was happy to pay the price for doing what was clearly the right thing to do. Um, and so, uh, and lots of people pay political prices um, yes. to do the right thing. So I'm not <laughs> special in that list, and not by a long shot. Um, back to the ecology of it all. Um, wolves are, um, they come in different kinds in the sense that they eat different things. And, um, and in the Great Lakes area, the different things that they eat are basically moose and deer. And those are very different kinds of things to eat. And you certainly become pretty skilled at hunting one or the other. In a few cases, you can learn to hunt both. Um, but it was also the judgment of most wolf biologists that wolves are a pretty quick study. And if they had mostly made a living on eating deer, they would figure out very quickly how to hunt moose. And that's not just a guess. That's based on seeing how it is that wolves operate in a system where both prey are available. And so anyways, the wolves that were brought to Isle Royale were wolves that had experience eating a variety of different prey, including moose and deer and uh, 
both kinds of wolves were brought to Isle Royal, and they both really have figured out quite handily how to hunt moose. Um, the other uh, consideration would be genetics. Um, again, it was judged by uh, a number of wolf biologists that um, um, as long as the wolves came from somewhere in the Great Lakes region, it would be fine from a, a genetic perspective. So in the end, uh, wolves uh, were brought to Isle Royal from Ontario and from Minnesota and from Michigan. And uh, so that's that's where they came from. Uh, and uh, and they, they're, they're doing really quite fine now. So here we are in, in, in mid-October 2021. Uh, how are the wolves doing today? You know, this is a this is a frustrating answer. There is a short uh, answer that's very broad brush, which is that we have lots of good reasons to think they're doing perfectly fine. At the same time, we are suffering from a very frustrating blind spot that many of us are familiar with, and that is called COVID. Yeah, and yeah. so many many of the things that we learn about the population occur in the wintertime. January and February is when we have our winter field season. That's when we count the wolves, count the moose. That's when we find out what the kill rates have been and understand their territoriality, all these kinds of things. And um, that winter field operation was just impossible to pull off in a safe way this past winter because of COVID. And so it was canceled. It is the case that there are a number of radio collared wolves, wolves with GPS collars uh, on the island now. And by understanding those collars and a few other bits of basically kind of careful sleuthing, collecting genetic samples, having been on the island the previous winter, we know that the population has reproduced a couple of times now. We know that they've formed what appear to be um, stable social groups, which means they also have reasonably stable territories, though we don't know all the fine details of that. And, uh, and, and, and they've been doing this now for a couple of years. And the only way to do this for a couple of years is for them to have figured out how to hunt moose on a reliable basis. We know all of that is taking place, even though we so wish we knew more details, like how many are there right now? We just don't know. Um, though if you asked me to guess, uh, to bet a nickel, you know, I'd say it's somewhere between 15 and 20 wolves on the island, which is uh, even close to a long-term uh, hoped for kind of average. The thing that's a little bit more in our blind spot is what's happening with the moose. Um, moose had been growing at like 20% per year for the seven or eight years before wolf predation was restored. We know that since wolf predation was restored, or have good reason to believe, I should say, that that 20% growth rate per year, which is smoking hot and not good for the population, not good for the right. island, right. Um, that's certainly been curtailed severely. They are either stable in their abundance for the last few years or, and I'd say more likely, declining. The most recent kind of evidence that we have to suggest that they're even declining has to do with the fact in the springtime, we, ha we, ha we were able to hold our spring field season. During the springtime, we comb the forest looking for places where wolves have killed moose. And usually the cause of death is that wolf, wolves killed them. And we do our necropsies. Uh, this spring, we found way more than the normal number of starved moose, which would suggest that they've you know, really seriously run out of food. And so uh, the next time that we get to count them, fingers crossed, will be this January and February coming up. Um, the long-term pattern for COVID looks like it's favorable and 
like many human societies, we're kind of adapting and figuring out how to get things done. Um, and so I, I think we'll hold our winter field season this coming up season. And then, uh, and then we'll, that's going to be when we get to know for sure. But I would, I would think that we're going to see that moose have declined in, in a pretty important way. At the end, I do want to talk about, you know, any social media or websites where we can follow you and, and, and see, get any updates. If we, if, if we can't, the listeners can, if you do publish that, but oh god, this interview is going to last two hours. There's so much I want to ask you, but I, I kind of want to jump to a, a question I, I thought of because in the book you talk about anthropomorphism, where we assign human emotions to animals, and it, it's been a frequent topic in our podcast when we talk some of these higher order vertebrates, you know, whales and and yeah. some of these other species. Do wolves have emotions and would you say they have culture? I mean, this is a new concept that maybe not, you know, to you, but to me, yeah. you know, from, from an animal physiologist point of view, thinking about behavior and culture, and we're starting to see this in a lot of species. It, it, it's fascinating to me. So as a, as a wolf expert, do they have emotions and, and, and do they have culture? Well, um, the question about emotions is easy. They, they simply do. There's like, and that, and that, and it's, uh, and that's a reasonably scientifically sound kind of a claim, not just a, a judgment. The culture question is a little tougher, but both questions get answered. I think in the, in similar fashion, which is, uh, one has to define what an emotion is uh, or define what culture is. And then we go figure out in a scientific manner, whether the animal in question, in this case, wolves have those traits. And so, um, you know, emotions, um, we can think about human emotions. Um, we can pick simple things like happiness, sadness, fright. We'll stick with those simple ones. There's a couple of things about it. If you have a dog, you don't need me to tell you that your dog is quite capable of happiness, sadness, fear. They're, and those are basic emotions. Even like a complicated emotion like embarrassment. Dogs are totally capable of embarrassment. And uh, wolves and dogs are basically the same kind of creature. They have the same physiology. They have the same central nervous system. And so they do all those same things. The other thing to appreciate, um, again, is that um, to think about these different kinds of emotions, because they do differ greatly, the different kinds of emotions. And they involve different, if we start from humans, they involve different parts of our brain. And so fear and joy and surprise... They come from parts of our brain that are very old. They come from parts of our brain that we share with fish and reptiles. And so those basic emotions you would fully expect to be exhibited by all those kinds of creatures. And think about it in really Darwinian natural selection kinds of terms. It's very advantageous to be afraid when there's a frightful situation. Mm -hmm. It will keep you alive. Mm -hmm. And it's a very good idea to have a sense of joy and happiness about things that are good. It will make you seek out that which is good, things that taste good, climates that are comfortable, and so forth. And so, um, so it's no surprise that animals like the kind that we're talking about, mainly vertebrates, have simple emotions. They are just things that keep vertebrates alive. For the higher emotions or the more complicated emotions, these can be dissected, I think, in a useful way that makes it all really quite straightforward. Think something like a shrew, which is a very solitary mammal, and compare that with something like a human 
or a dog or a wolf. And let's think about the emotions of shame or embarrassment. Well, what's the purpose of shame or embarrassment? Well, between two humans, the purpose of shame and embarrassment is it, it keeps me behaving in a certain way. It keeps me behaving in a way that you expect me to behave in and vice versa. So it helps us get along in a certain way. And so you, and, and of course, dogs are very social as well. And so it pays for social organisms to have emotions that we call higher emotions, like embarrassment. They help lubricate our social interactions. Shrews, I don't really know if shrews can experience embarrassment or not, yeah. but, I, but I would guess that they probably don't mm -hmm. because they're not particularly social. And, and so I think what happens about these questions, and this is so interesting to me anyways, is who cares? Yeah. And there's two ways to answer the who cares, maybe three ways. One is, by golly, that's curious. Like, it's very interesting to think about how and why certain animals have certain emotions. That's all very mm -hmm. fine. Mm -hmm. But I don't think this basic curiosity is what fuels the interest in these questions in our broader society about whether, again, whales or orangutans or meerkats have certain emotions. I think what it is, is about the following, is if they have these emotions, somehow it's supposed to make us care about them more. Mm -hmm. And if they don't have these emotions, we're somehow off the hook and don't have to care about them as much. And that's where I think our thinking starts to go awry. I think that a shrew is every bit as important as a wolf, even though the one certainly can experience embarrassment and the other one probably can't. And, and I think what happens is that culture is something similar. And what happens is that we just start as humans, we've started, you know, becoming interested in more and more complicated traits because culture is a more complicated trait than emotions. And we wonder, is, does this creature have it? And does that creature have it? You know, we we did the same thing. It's not as important these days, but in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, the the, the question of the day was: Are they smart? Are octopuses smart? Right. Are 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 uh, are ravens smart? And somehow, if they we judge them to be smart, we would somehow be obligated to care about them more. Mm -hmm. well, I mean, good lord, they're all smart enough to get along in their environments. And right. my goodness, a raven is way smarter than you and I is when it comes to finding food to scavenge. Right? right, right. They get along just fine. We'd we'd starve to death in a month. Yeah, I know, I know. And so, so I think what happens is that these questions about culture and intelligence and emotions, they're, they're all just plain fascinating. And they all generate a sense of wonder about these creatures, whether they end up possessing the trait or not. But I think it's a mistake to hook too much of our moral concern on whether these creatures possess these traits or not. That's when I think we start to go wrong. And, and then what happens is when we do that, we can ask the question a lot more openly and without quite as much at stake. And so, and on that account, I actually don't know if wolves have culture or not. There's a little bit of it where I may not be quite up to date on all of the science and, and some of it where I'm, I'm certainly am not up to date on all of the elements of culture. But again, you, you tell me what culture is. We'll go see if wolves have it. Yeah. I, can, I can speak to an example that I know a bit, you know, so for um, for some cetacean species, uh, whale species, uh, it does seem that they have patterns of singing that are tied to kin groups and are kind of spatially segregated throughout different parts of the ocean. And people have called that culture. 
because it's a form of communication that's systematically different uh, between these large groups. I mean, that's how you would describe human cultures. Wolves, boy, I don't quite know if they do that. They certainly have habits, and their habits would differ from one pack to a next. I don't know if those differing habits are quite rise to the level of us calling it a culture or not. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. There may be people who have done research on wolf vocalizations that would suggest these kind of differences. If that's the case, I'm not quite up on it. But those are the sorts of things you would start to inspect about wolves. And then you've got to just compare it to a hard, cold, sterile definition of culture and then see if they fit the definition or not. And so, so I don't know, I think these questions all rank as like amazingly fascinating. Um, but I do think we sometimes um, attach a tiny bit the wrong significance to it. I, that's an amazing answer though. It, it, that's a new perspective I, I haven't really heard. It's like, why care? You know, it doesn't matter. They're still important, right? It, it's, it, and I think it is, it's, it's, it's applying the humanness to it. So like, oh, we'll care more about them. If, you know, who cares about a stupid, you know, mole in the ground or, or shrew? Well, we do and, 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 and other animals do right up and yeah. down the, the food web. All right. I, I, we're running out of time. I've got to ask this, you know, as a, as somebody who has dedicated their lives to, to studying wolves and other species, but, but primarily wolves, in the last couple of years, obviously, uh, we try not to get very political on the podcast, but, you know, wolves have been delisted from the Endangered Species Act in the U.S. and they lost a lot of protection. There, we were appalled when one of the states in the, the Idaho, you know, basically is just eliminating all the wolves in, in their environment. It, it And I think it's happening in some other places in the United States. What's your feeling on that from, from a, from a wolf biologist standpoint? And is there any updates lately, you know, for, for trying to get them relisted or better protected? I know in your book, you talk about, Oh, I forgot her name. One of the wolves that, that did leave uh, the Island and she was, she was shot right away. Um, you know, I, I was like, oh man, that's tough. So anyways, just what's your opinion on it? And, and, and where are we in trying to protect these, these critical, critical predators? You can't, yeah, you, you can't study wolves very long without being confronted by these questions about how it is that wolves and humans relate. And, and, and there are, there's politics with a small P involved. There's politics with a big P involved, but there's also, really important and basic ethics involved. And of course, um, I make scholarly contributions both to ecological science and to environmental ethics. And so the thoughts that I have come from that perspective. And there are two of them. And, and they're really, they get conflated in the United States a great deal. But there's two separate issues. The first issue has to do with hunting wolves. And the question about hunting wolves is in principle, the same as the question for hunting or killing any other creature. You shouldn't kill any creature ever without a good reason. It really is that simple. Now, different people will come out differently on what counts as a good reason to kill an animal. And some of that variation can be okay and fine. Many people think that it's fine to hunt deer, especially because we eat meat. Some people think that's not a good enough reason, and they end up being vegetarian. And they have a lot to teach those of us who eat meat. And those 
seem to me basically fine. And we all know that we all coexist, vegetarians and meat eaters, perfectly fine. Though I have a feeling the future involves more vegetarianism for most of us. I think so. (laughs) But when it comes to hunting wolves, people offer reasons and they're basically just demonstrably false reasons. People say that we should hunt wolves because that's a way to protect humans. It's just false. People say that we should hunt wolves because wolves diminish hunting opportunities. It's patently objectively, scientifically false that that's the case. People say that we should hunt wolves because they kill livestock. Wolves do kill livestock, and it's relatively rare. And when it occurs, the livestock owner has a pretty serious interest to make it better, but hunting is not the way to make it better. There are other ways to make it better. So what happens is that these false reasons for hunting wolves are raised, and they're so easily shown to be false that it begs the question, what's the real reason that there's so much clamoring to hunt wolves? And the only answer that I really can figure is that it's because some people hate wolves. And man, that is not a reason to kill another animal. It just isn't. So um, that can all be tied to a great deal of really robust environmental ethics. It's, I, 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 it is my opinion, but I also think it rises much higher than just an opinion. Um, a separate question about wolves in the United States in particular is should they be, t- be protected by the Endangered Species Act or not? The motivation to relist them has been the irresponsible management of several state agencies who've wanted to overhunt them. That's definitely been the motivation. But the Endangered Species Act, which is a law, was not designed to manage or restrict hunting. So it's a little bit like trying to solve a problem for which a law wasn't quite designed to do. I suppose you can try it and see if it works and see what happens. It would be a good cause. But here's the reason that this is a little frustrating to make this conflation is because this is going to sound weird, but there's this really simple question for which we don't know the answer to. Here's a simple question. What is an endangered species? And I would argue we can't answer the question. We know for sure that panda bears and tigers are endangered. There's no doubt about it. And we know for sure that raccoons and robins are not endangered. That's fine. But there's this big and growing gray area where we're not sure. And wolves are an example of this. And here's the way the question is supposed to be framed legally. And I think it's actually a very good way to frame the question. The Endangered Species Act says that a species is endangered if a species is at, this is verbatim, this is quoted right from the law, if a species is at risk of extinction throughout all or a significant portion of its range, close quote. So at risk of extinction throughout all or a significant portion of its range. It's that geographic part that's so important. What it bas- it's, It is kind of wonky legalese kind of talk. What it says in plain language is that a species should be well distributed across its former range. Well, there's a little bit of a gray area there, and laws are full of gray areas. That's where all the action takes place. But that's that question. What does it mean to be well distributed across your former range? In the lower 48, wolves currently exist on about 15% of the places that they used to live. 
it's very difficult to see that living in 15% of the places that you used to live is well distributed throughout your former range. It's very difficult to see how living in 15% of your former range fulfills the demand of the Endangered Species Act. Mm-hmm. And here's the trouble. If we run roughshod over wolves with the Endangered Species Act, we will certainly do it with other species as well. We have to get it right. And here's the trouble, is that why wolves clearly do not fit the definition of a recovered species. They clearly fit the definition of an endangered species. Therefore, I think they belong on the endangered species list. It is also the case that we don't know precisely well enough, well, how many wolves do there need to be? The question hasn't been asked seriously enough and robustly enough to get a decent answer, not for wolves and quite frankly, not for any other species. Because here's here's the part that might be surprising to a lot of listeners. If you take species that are studied well, these would be most of the vertebrate species, mammals, birds, amphibians, reptiles, and you ask of those species that have been studied well, how much of those species geographic range do they occupy now compared to their historic range? The answer is in the neighborhood of about 50%. They occupy about very roughly half of what they used to occupy, which means we wipe them out from about half of the places that they used to be. That's sad. That ain't right. Now, how much should we restore them to? To all of the places that they used to be? Well, I don't think that's possible. And I also don't think that it's necessary to do that and still be right by these creatures. But probably we can do better than 50%. And we certainly can do better than the 15% that we've allowed for wolves. And so anyways, this is where the action lies. Too few people have their eye on that question. And it makes a big difference uh, to get our eyes on that question because it answers the question, what is an endangered species? Right. Right. It, it, uh, just my heart breaks. My heart breaks for them. It just really does. They're just such amazing creatures. And then, you know, uh, domestic dogs are best friends, you know, man's best friend, man and woman's best friend. And then we take their closely related cousin and, and, and kill them for, for no other reason than fear. That's my opinion. Sorry. I don't usually let those leak in, but <laughs> no, I think it's fine. I can add a little science to, to what you described as an opinion. Um, the Ojibwa people describe themselves with wolves as siblings. They believe that literally. Um, we tend to like think, oh, that's kind of figurative. They believe it literally in the same way that a Catholic person would think that the Eucharist is the blood and body of Christ. They don't think that as a symbol. Catholics don't. They think it literally. And you might say, oh, well, that's very fine for Ojibwa people to think that. And I should say for our, our listeners, the Ojibwa people are a Native American group of people that uh, live in the place where I live, um, the Upper Great Lakes area. And um and you might say, well, that's fine for Ojibwe people, but, but, but Western people, they can't think like that. But you know what? Darwin tells us that we have to think like that because we share common ancestors. Not only are wolves and dogs the same creature, essentially, because they share a common ancestor. Humans and wolves share a common ancestor, too. That makes us effectively siblings. And, you know, really, that's the proper way to judge our relationship. Are you treating your brother and sister properly? And if you can answer the question, yes, then we're probably doing well by them. If you, if you, if you, if you wouldn't treat your brother or sister that way, then, you, then you're probably not treating your other siblings, our non-human siblings, in the right way, too. Yeah. Yeah, I I literally got to half my questions with you. I I 
I, this you're a guest I would love to bring back and maybe get an update in, in, in a few months. And after you do your studies and stuff, if you had time, because I just, I, I love picking your brain, but final, final question, where can our listeners find your book? Again, it is restoring the balance. What wolves tell us about our relationship with nature, you know, Dr. John Vucetich. And do you have any social media or websites where our listeners can go? Right. Uh, the book, Restoring the Balance, can be bought anywhere the books are bought. Uh, most importantly, Johns Hopkins University Press. Um, easy to find. If your readers pick it up, they'll love it. I'm sure of it. Um, we also have a webpage, um, isleroyalwolves.org. And we have a Facebook page, Isle Royal Wolves. If you just type in Isle Royal Wolves, you can find these things into, into an internet browser. You'll easily find these these connections without any trouble at all. Yeah, we'll definitely put those links in the show notes. But John, literally fascinating. I uh, was just love listening uh, to you. I loved reading uh, your research notes. You know, in the book, you know, just the raw stuff and 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 learning about what is so special about wolves and moose in this part of the world. But thank you so much. Thank you so much for what you do, the work you're doing, and thanks for being on. Oh my gosh, it was. It was a special hour to have shared with you. I loved it just as much myself, and I would I would cherish another opportunity to share another uh, another interview with you sometime. Awesome, awesome. Well, take care. Bye now. <laughs>